Welcome to the Howl in the Wilderness podcast. I'm your host, Brian James. Howl in the Wilderness features deep and insightful conversations with renegade artists, philosophers, psychologists, and spiritual teachers who are working on the edge of dominant culture to recover and revive soul in people and the planet. On this episode, I welcome author and psychologist Ian C. Edwards to the podcast to speak about his new book, A Druid and Psychologist's Clothing, E. Graham Howe's Secret Druidic Doctrine, published in 2023 by Anathema. E. Graham Howe is the epitome of the kind of renegade spirit that we celebrate on this podcast. He was born in 1896 and was one of the founding members of the famous Tavistock Clinic in London. Although Howe's work was initially well received by the burgeoning English psychoanalytic community, he soon began to ruffle some feathers with his eclectic and non-conforming ideas that incorporated concepts derived from Eastern spiritual practice. Howe published 12 books on a number of topics, and his writing stands out in the field for his straightforward and clear style and conscious avoidance of psychological jargon. Through his books and lectures, E. Graham Howe influenced well-known intellectuals and fellow renegades such as R.D. Lang, Alan Watts, and Henry Miller. While Howe traveled to India and studied Eastern spirituality and practice, he found a home for his ideas in the images and concepts of the ancient Druids, who he referred to as masters of the art of living. He outlined this Druidic approach to a spiritual psychology in the posthumously published book, The Mind of the Druid. In our conversation, Ian and I speak in-depth about E. Graham Howe's life and work, his place within the psychological milieu of the early 20th century among contemporaries such as C.G. Jung, and how revisiting his once radical ideas could serve to revive secular psychology that has run out of ideas by finally incorporating spirituality and metaphysics into its theory and practice. If you'd like to get access to early release of full episodes and listen and watch free of advertising and interruptions, please consider supporting the podcast directly by becoming part of the pack over at patreon.com forward slash howl in the wilderness. Your financial contribution, support, and encouragement is what sustains me in this work. Now, please sit back, relax, and enjoy my conversation with Ian C. Edwards. Thanks for listening. Well, I'm here with Ian C. Edwards, who is the author of a new book on E. Graham Howe, and I received it uh, fairly recently from the publisher Anathema, who are located in Quebec, Canada. It is such a beautiful book and such a rarity in today's world to have such a gorgeously printed book on an obscure topic i guess uh but man it is just beautiful um i'm a you know i've been a bibliophile my whole life and uh, a book designer and so i really appreciate the care and attention that's gone into this it uh it's obviously a uh, a labor of love absolutely so when did your love affair with e graham howe begin because he's someone that, uh, you know, in all my studying of psychology, I hadn't come across until very recently. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so oftentimes when I mention that I've written a book on E. Graham Howe, people will say E. Graham who? 
Mm -hmm. So that's sort of the common refrain, egram who. Um, so people that are well-established in psychology, in particular depth psychology, um, not many people have heard of him. And for me, um, I first heard about E. Graham Howe when I was in graduate school. So while I was in graduate school, and this was back in the late 90s, early 2000s, um, graduate program in clinical psychology that focuses primarily on existential phenomenological approaches to psychotherapy, um, I was exploring different dissertation topics. And so the first idea I had was to write a psychobiography of Aleister Crowley. Um, I got about almost to the proposal stage, but I really couldn't find a full committee that would support my writing of the book. So I had to abandon that project. And I thought, okay, why don't I do something on Alan Watts? You know, I want to do something on the relationship between Alan Watts's philosophy and psychotherapy. So I was talking with my dissertation chair, who um, is uh, Dr. Daniel Burston, um, formerly of Duquesne University in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, who has since retired. Um, I brought the idea up to him. And he said, why don't you write something on Eric Graham Howe? And I'm like, Eric Graham who? Right? Mm -hmm. So I was the first <laughs> one to come up with that sort of frame. Um, and so he explained to me a little bit about who Eric Graham Howe was. And I'm like, how is it that people haven't heard of this guy? I mean, he's written 13 books, um, countless articles, um, he influenced Alan Watts. He was actually one of Alan Watts's teachers during Watts's early development, um, was a friend of Krishnamurti, um, was one of the first to integrate psychotherapy with spirituality, one of the founding members of the famous Tavistock Clinic. Um, he was an interlocutor with Carl Jung during one of Carl Jung's seminars. And I'm like, how is it that people haven't heard of him? So... I started to do a little bit of digging, and what I found out was that he was during a time when psychoanalysis was establishing itself as a kind of dogma throughout Europe. This person, Eric Graham Howe, was this uninhibited eclectic who borrowed freely from other traditions, spiritual and philosophical, and he made liberal use of the contemplative traditions in psychotherapy didn't write with a dogma, um, didn't want to hear, adhere to any kind of lexical canon. And then I'm like, okay, that's why he was left out of the history books. <laughs> that's why he's marginalized. That's why nobody has heard of him. Um, so I'm like, that's a great idea. And so I took my dissertation chair's guidance and um, I sought to write a dissertation on him. And so the book that you hold in your hands was originally a dissertation. Now, what you have is a much more expanded, um, much more revised version of that. But it started off as a dissertation. And um, at the time when I wrote the dissertation, the emphasis was on leaving a lot of the more explicit spiritual references out. And so if you look at the original which was called Truth as Relationship, The Psychology of E. Graham Howe, title of my dissertation, um, all of the references for the most part 
to Druidry, with the exception of quoting the mind of the Druid from time to time and making the references here and there, that was all left out. Um, so there was a real sense that I should make this strictly about how psychotherapy and how he borrowed from these traditions to influence the psychotherapy, which is true. But there wasn't a real emphasis on me explicitly articulating his connection to Druidry. So when I revise the dissertation into a book, it's like, okay, let's include all of that stuff, right? That could have gone into the original. So it was fun to really expand it and um, to really explicitly highlight House connection with some major Druidic concepts. Hmm. Um, it's it's surprising that none of his books are available in print anymore. Uh, like you said, I think he wrote about uh, 12 books, and then one was released um, posthumously, posthumously, The Mind of a Druid. Mm -hmm. uh, and it sounds like his early books were actually quite well received in the psychology world, some of them even uh, being like required reading and uh, psychological training. Now, was there a point where he started to write more openly or did he have uh, some kind of experience that led to this break with the uh, with the conventional psychotherapeutic world? Well, he he studied Buddhism in India in the 1950s. And so I think that may have had an impact on him. And all the while, um, you know, again, like he had from the very beginning kind of established what was this open way kind of dialogue group you know, where all kinds of individuals from different walks of life would come together and convene and really talk about spiritual topics. And so from the very beginning, you could see like these spiritual influences on him. Um, but if one were to argue, you know, one could say like his experiences, you know, studying Buddhism in the 1950s probably had more of a profound impact on him than you can really get explicitly from his writings that might make over reference to that and you know if you read his stuff even on druidry for instance like the mind of the druid in many ways it's kind of unconventional because he basically talks about druidry and druids being masters of the art of life you know with not this real emphasis on ritual or ceremonial practice which was often a big part of druidry so the way I had kind of thought of how was that it was this person who really first and foremost was a healer, like he was a doctor of the soul. And he took from these various traditions, in particular Druidry, and he made that foundational to his approach to healing those that were suffering. And um, like even in, in for me, like his greatest book is uh, Cure or Heal in 1965. Um, the board by um, R.D. Lang, who was also, you know, very much influenced by Howe. Um, and Howe was very critical of Lang, too, in terms of Lang's use of psychedelics and things of that sort. Um, but Lang was very much influenced by Howe, and I think vice versa to a certain extent as well, because you see a lot of overlap. But, you know, Howe, um, I think where he learned most was from his patients, his experiences as a psychotherapist. Um, day in and day out, working with suffering souls. And so, you know, when he 
took from these various traditions, philosophical and spiritual, it was all, it, for me, it was a way to kind of augment and to come up with a new language for understanding, understanding the healing process. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and he does have a, a um, idiosyncratic use of language when he's talking about his, uh, his metaphysics. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of like... Um, capitalization of words and uh uh well there's a book called the the druid of is it harley street, harley street. Mm -hmm. harley street which is where he practiced uh and it has some excerpts from some of his books that are out of print and uh i was kind of struck by some words would be in in like small caps uh you know he's trying to communicate something that's really hard to communicate. Um, and so he's continually talking about that T H A T yes. small caps. Um, and so that seems to be something that he picked up from the Eastern tradition, the idea that there's a greater consciousness than, mm -hmm. um, well, I think he even said like, uh, was small C yes. small C and the big C or something like yes. that. Yes. Yes. So yeah, absolutely. always pointing to that, that, that <laughs> with emphasis on that as the unknowable other, the, the aspect of life that's greater than any of us, um, pointing to that as the crucial element in healing and, yes. and making space for that in the therapeutic relationship. Yes. Spot on. Absolutely. Yeah. The, that kind of, and the way I sort of look at that, in all caps and my relate my way of connecting how to his druidry is this idea of awen right and so awen is this kind of intermediary that translates nothingness into somethingness it's the source of inspiration it's creativity it's spontaneity it's connected to this much broader much bigger consciousness that's this pure subjectivity it's connected to that and it is that capital T-H-A-T. And so, like, even though, like, you know, how tries to, in some way, leave that untranslated in a way and not explicitly state what it is, other than it's this mysterious other or the numinous or something along those lines, there are certainly cognate terms, you know, that you can compare that to, right? And so, like, Awen in Druidry, the Tao um, and Taoism, you know, um, Christ consciousness, you know, and Christianity, you know, Buddha nature, you know, Tathagata, you know, thing, cognate terms like that. And so there's a way in which, um, like, even in my book, I try to draw the connection between that, this mysterious other, that which is responsible for healing, and some of these other cognate kind of terms and experiences. And really, like, for someone like myself, um, who considers myself to practice in the tradition of how, to be honest, like he very much influenced my work as a psychotherapist, um, to quote kind of Alan Watts, you know, you get out of your own way in the healing process and how he even says you sort of set the ego to the side and you surrender to that, right? And it's that which is responsible for healing versus what he would call curing so in cure or heal he makes that important differentiation yeah i i pulled a, a quote from cure or heal that uh um i think sums it up very well 
He says, uh, to cure one does it through one's power over one thing and another, and what is so done had best be done efficiently. To heal, on the other hand, one straightens the limb, cleans and bandages the wound, but leaves the work of healing to a mysterious and yet effective other. The healing process is to relate, meet, wed the opposites, and to hold them together in a relationship such as wrestlers endure, but without a referee. <laughs> I mean, that that's great. And it and it resonates with some of my inspirations, like James Hillman, especially mm. the wrestling part. Like Hillman was very adamant about, you know, it's not about accepting uh, the way things are or our fate, unless accepting is kind of like being in a wrestler's grip with with, with something, you know, like uh, Jacob wrestling with the angel. Um, but that that's great. When reading some of the excerpts from Howe's work, I get a bit lost in his metaphysics. It's it's just not my orientation to get into that stuff. So when he gets into it with his idiosyncratic language and these um, quirky diagrams, <laughs> uh, he loses me a bit. But when he speaks about the attitude of the therapist and the importance of relationship in the therapeutic uh, process, uh, that that's where I'm really intrigued. Yeah, absolutely. You know, and it's interesting because so referencing the dialogue that Hao had with Jung in the chapter on time and the unconscious. So he makes this accusation of Jung by saying, well, look, your system is four dimensional, but you present it in this three dimensional sort of way. So Hao was very interested in kind of looking at his own system of psychotherapy, his own metaphysics, and also Jung's as these four-dimensional ways of understanding healing and psychotherapy. So what I think you find in how too is that like he has these more poetic kinds of musings on that and the mysterious other and its presence in psychotherapy that you can connect to on a soulful level, but he also feels the need to create diagrams to explain it as well. Like, therefore, in some way, you know, like Jung with the Red Book, like his entire, the entire collected works in some way are ways of trying to make sense of his experiences that he discussed in the Red Book. So I think you could say the same thing with how, like, when he encounters the presence of the mysterious other, or what I would say is Awen, like, yeah, the best way to express it is oftentimes through poetry, through inspiration, through spontaneous musings, and even through silence. But he also feels at the same time to create diagrams to try to depict it in some way, right? And so I think he also gets caught up at times in this tendency to want to explain in some ways this mysterious principle in a manner that people can understand, right? Using diagrams, using graphs, using, you know, things of that sort. Um, and so ultimately trying to explain that or the mysterious other using sort of a graph or a chart or a diagram is like the finger pointing to the mood. It's something that eludes it ultimately. So like many of us who have had these types of experiences um, in psychotherapy and otherwise, like, how do you use language to describe something like that? Mm -hmm. <laughs> T-H-A-T capitalized. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and a lot of what he's um, trying to describe through uh, the poetic language and the diagrams is our relationship to that um, and this like intermediary function um, of of that between uh, therapist and patient. Uh, yeah, it, that's something that Jung, um, Jung's followers really took up, you know, creating all these diagrams of the psyche and things like that. But uh, Jung's uh depictions of his experience were much more i would say artistic or much more like a like a yantra um less kind of explicit and uh, still retaining something of the esoteric yes. um and i think like you know maybe part of jung's or uh, how's impulse to to explain to to attempt to explain uh well, he was critical of uh, psychiatry, psychology, for not creating, um, not being um, systematic enough, for not being clear enough with their metaphysics, right? Um, and so I think he's trying to remedy that in a way. Would you say that's true? Yeah, I definitely think that's true. Um, you know, especially... And you could even argue that in some way his metaphysics and his psychotherapy, his relationship to those things is a critique of psychoanalysis. It's a response to psychoanalysis in some way, right? And so you could see him very much struggling with psychoanalysis because in many ways he can be read as a psychoanalyst, which I, when I used um, Dan Burstyn's typology, you know, I did classify Jung, I mean, I did classify Howe as a psychodynamic theorist, but in terms of that dissident fringe group, that would include people like Jung, actually, the dissident fringe in relationship to Freud. And so you can certainly see his metaphysics in some way as a kind of remedy. Um, you know, I think in some ways, um, you know, the critique of orthodox psychoanalysis was that they were attempting to take that, if you will, and turn it into a kind of systematic dogma and surrounding this idea of the unconscious, right? So there's this nomenclature, there's this relationship to Freud, sort of as the father figure, right? And I think he wanted to free psychoanalysis from itself in some way. And if you look at his metaphysics, if you look at his psychotherapy, it's almost like it's psychoanalysis stripped bare of all the dogma, of all the nomenclature, of all of the metapsychological classificatory types of terms. And so when you strip that bare, what you have is maybe the essence of psychoanalysis, which is Howe's metaphysics and his approach to psychotherapy. Mm. Yeah, I think a lot of that jargon was used to obscure um, the spiritual nature of what's been being talked about. Like, especially in the case of Jung, um, you know, like the unconscious. Uh, what he's really talking about is something more like um, the Akashic records or the astral plane. Um, and so I think how is... Uh, Calling, calling bullshit on that and says, look, you're obscuring the, the spiritual reality that's in your psychology, actually. So I'm just going to be explicit about it and talk about right. it. 
And I, I guess that was not well received. Like it was strategic on Jung's part to obscure some of his more uh, mystical inclinations and try to keep his psychology scientific. Um, strategic in that way. And maybe that's why he was more well received. He didn't scare people off as much. Um, I don't know. What's your read on that? Yeah. And the thing with how is that he didn't want disciples, you know, and Jung didn't either. I don't believe, I don't think he mm -hmm. wanted adherents or disciples um, in the sense that one would become a Jungian. I think Jung would abhor, I think he did abhor the idea that one would be a Jungian an attempt to systematize his work. How was even more radical, I think, in that direction, in the sense that, you know, his metaphysical psychology, his system or anti-system, as you will, um, could not be followed, right? Um, and he even quotes Jung as kind of saying, like, well, you can't hand, you can't hand to a patient a ready-made philosophy. That's not the goal. Of psychotherapy so you can't prescribe psychoanalysis for a patient there's a way in which in many ways each psychotherapy is different it's unique contingent upon the patient the client and one's relationship to the client and i think for me that's the essence of jung's psychotherapy ultimately this idea of two chemicals coming together like he talks about, and then after the separation, they both emerge changed in some capacity. I think for how it's very similar, and it involves the presence of the psychotherapist or the healer in the room as something or someone, more aptly put, that the patient can come in contact with, and that ultimately what's responsible for the healing is this mysterious other. Mm -hmm. And let's not make the patient the patient, but let's make in some way psyche patient, right? Psyche becomes in some way the in-between of both patient and therapist. And what's responsible for healing is ultimately something that we can't pinpoint. Like we all know in psychotherapy sessions that something happens that we can't entirely explain. And then we go back to write a progress note about it it's like you're doing some form of translation. You're translating something that happened that you can't really describe, but ultimately mm -hmm. was responsible for the experience. Yeah. yeah. Can you imagine the real honest uh, <laughs> transcript or the report uh, to the, you know, whoever, the supervisor, the insurance agency, <laughs> like, we were having a discussion about this and something came over both of us and we fell into a reverie and uh, an image was all of a sudden in the space between us. And <laughs> right, right. Well, incidentally, so to, to that point, right? So um, one of the things that I do is that I oversee a counseling center at a university. And so I supervise a number of pre-doctoral trainees and one resident. And every once in a while, what I'll say to a, a, a therapist, one of my trainees, is that I want you to write. So we'll, we'll sometimes we'll say, OK, you know, if you read like Dostoevsky, for instance, in terms of how he describes people, right, versus like a progress note versus a case note, do you get more of a feel of the person from Dostoevsky or from a soap note, right? Um, you get more of a feel for a person by reading Dostoevsky. Uh, 
So every once in a while, I'll say, you know, and this is more for like a clinician psychotherapy now. I'll say, you know what? I want you to describe what happened experientially. I don't want you to translate this into any clinical nomenclature. You're not writing for me as your supervisor. You're not writing for an insurance company. I want you to describe what happened. And it's amazing what the clinician writes. It's poetic. It's absolutely poetic and beautiful. And you're left reading that. And you're like, oh, my God, I got a real feel for what happened in the room. I can't exactly describe it, but I feel it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And well, how was a phenomenologist, much mm-hmm. like Jung, uh, phenomenology was very central to Jung's approach, um, g- like attempting to describe reality, really, or one's experience of reality, right? It's, that's how I think of phenomenology. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Um, there are a lot of par- parallels between Howe and Jung, like the uh, the reliance on, on the third, you know, you know, however they labeled that, mm-hmm. but the third in the room, like Jung would say, like we're in the soup together. It's like you're you're more of a guide or a partner in the individuation or the healing process with the patient, and of course you can't help but be changed because you're in the soup too. Yes. Um, I think, you know, uh, one of the things I was struck by, you can read uh, Howe's ideas um, and get a sense of his metaphysics and all of that. But uh, for me, like the most telling thing is how other people describe a person like that. Like specifically, I'm thinking of how Alan Watts described meeting Carl Jung. Um, He, you know, he the way he talks about him is really great. Like he had a twinkle in his eye. There was a rascality to his personality. Like he knew himself well enough uh, to know, you know, his dark side and all of that. And uh, um, he said it was like, he got the sense of meeting a, a fully integrated person, both the light and the dark side. And um, I went and looked up the Henry Miller collection of essays where he has an essay called uh, wisdom of the heart. And he talks about uh, how, uh, and, and it's fantastic. I think um, I don't want to read it right now, but I think I'm going to uh, read it and insert it here because it gives the same sense of a, a person who's really uh, living the the principles that he's uh, promoting in a way. E. Graham Howe is a man in his prime, healthy, normal, in the abnormal sense, successful, as the word goes, and desirous more than anything else of leading his own life. He knows that the healer is primarily an artist and not a magician or a god. He seeks, by expressing his views publicly, to wean the public of a dependency which is itself an expression of disease. He is not interested in healing, but in being. He does not seek to cure, but to enjoy a life more abundant. He is not struggling to eliminate disease, but to accept it, and by devouring it, incorporate it into the body of light and health, which is man's true heritage. He is not overburdened, because his philosophy of health would not permit him to assume tasks beyond his powers. He takes everything in his stride with measure and balance, 
consuming only what he can digest and assimilate of experience. If he is a very capable analyst, as is generally admitted, even by his detractors, it is not because of what he knows, but because of what he is. He is constantly unloading himself of excess baggage, be it in the form of patients, friends, admirers, or possessions. His mind is, as the Chinese well say, alive and empty. He is anchored in the flux, neither drowned in it nor vainly trying to damn it. He is a very wise man who is at peace with himself and the world. One knows that instantly, merely by shaking hands with him. Henry Miller, Wisdom of the Heart. And so the thing that um, I find interesting about how, like you said, he wasn't so much interested in the kind of ritual practices of the Druids, whatever we imagine those to be. And it's largely, I think, an imagination of uh, what Druidic ritual was like. There's not a lot of Mm -hmm. documentation of that. Uh, But instead, what he was interested in was cultivating the mind of the Druid, which I really like. So it's not about... um, performing ritual, uh, but it's about taking on the mind of the Druid. Now, could you talk a little bit about what he conceived that to be and how it would be expressed through action and relationship? Yeah, I mean, I think that's really sort of the essence of Howe's work, you know, and the mind of the Druid obviously being a posthumously published document you know, kind of like the Red Book, you know, something that in some way came before, but was published later. And we can talk about what it means to come before, whether it was something written, or it was just something that was percolating in his own psyche. But I think if you look at all of Howe's works, what he's describing is the mind of the Druid, right? And so there's this idea that the Druid was less about the imagined ritual or ceremonial, but a way of being in the world. And so it's a very phenomenological, very existential, in my opinion, take on Druidry. So what was it like for a Druid to be in the world? And it's this idea of this magic of everyday life. It's a way of seeing, it's a way of experiencing, it's a way of connecting to the presence of Awen you know, as the source of inspiration, right, that is responsible for all modes of creativity. It's about connecting with one's own inner bard, one's own inner muse, right, and speaking and acting and loving and connecting from that very place. So any relationship to the external other is predicated on a relationship ultimately to Awen if it's going to be authentic. And that, in many ways, is the mind of the Druid, right? And so when I read how, especially the mind of the Druid, I try to put myself in that mindset and say, okay, what's it like to look at a simple phenomenon, you know, like a stone or a tree? Because, of course, the Druids were very fond of nature, right? Nature was a big part of their spirituality. And what does it really mean to have this sort of divinized approach to nature, to appreciate nature as something that was sacred? And it's because both nature and psyche have a shared reality. They have a shared connection 
to this mysterious other, to this mysterious source, capital S, Awen, which gives rise to all things. And in the appendix sections of my book on how I talk about Einigen the giant, right? You know, this myth um, that gets told or reconstructed. And this is my own sort of poetic musing on it. This is not a straight retelling of the story at all. It's sort of me connecting with the source of creativity and in some way allowing these words to flow through me. So the content, especially in those sections, is more about the process in terms of how I wrote it as opposed to simply what I wrote. And so from these very spontaneous, intuitive, creative places, I was able to see in some ways this mind of Einigen the giant, this great expansive mind, this mind that connects the heavens to the earth, right? The whole idea of a giant, your feet on the ground, your head in the clouds. So it's a connection, you know, that takes you from earth all the way to air and everything in between. And so it's this full connection. It's this full embrace of reality without rejecting anything. And that was a big part of how psychotherapy it's like people in some way want to engage in what he calls protective identification and it not projective identification, but protective identification, where in some ways they want to avoid or shun the more shadowy, afflictive parts of the self. But the idea is, in my opinion, based on my reading, is to strip away the stories that one tells oneself or has been told about a particular experience or feeling and just allow oneself to experience it and to feel it as directly as possible because the way out is the way through. Mm -hmm. I love that image of the giant um, being kind of uh, the ideal person, let's say, feet on the ground, head in the clouds, and a body connecting the, body. the two. Yeah, let's not forget the body. Not forget the body. <laughs> and a big body at that. <laughs> yeah, a massive body capable of um feeling so much and yes. uh, can and uh there's something about uh his approach um that feels very Taoist in a way. Um and I'm wondering like he had this experience in the east this encounter with uh Buddhist thought and and meditative experience. Now, was his did he search out something in the Western tradition uh, to ground himself in after having these experiences? You know, I think about Jung going to the East and getting really enamored of uh, you know the the chakra system and and um, you know he wrote the intro to the golden flower book and all of that okay. like he was really enamored with the the east but he uh he refused to try to incorporate that into his psychology because he felt that um well that we had a, maybe a different uh kind of psyche or consciousness style in the west and that we needed our own need to be rooted in our own traditions right so he went to alchemy and, and gnosticism um to try to find uh that kind of container for a similar type of experience and attitude. Is that what Hal was doing with Druidry? Like, did he come back and, and, and 
seek out something like uh, what he found in the East? Or is it something he came to, you know, spontaneously or by happenstance? Yeah, and that's a good point, kind of comparing Howe's process with Jung's, right? And so, like, is there's this this notion that the West has to find its own yoga, right? Because Jung yeah. said that the West needs its own yoga. And so one goes towards alchemy, Gnosticism, various esoteric and occult traditions, um, contemplative Christianity, to kind of ground these experiences in the Western psyche. I'm not so sure that was the case with how right and so i don't think he would subscribe to the same belief as jung did in reference to there being like a western and then kind of an eastern psyche yeah right? that's a good point he he didn't have that same prejudice no or no. resistance let's say yeah. right there wasn't that sense of resistance that you would find maybe in jung um and i think how like we have to keep in mind too that his father was a christian bishop like he was an Anglican bishop. And so from a very early age, how was steeped in Christianity, right? That was a big part of his own background. And much, much like Jung. Much like Jung as well, mm -hmm. exactly. Um, but I think how never felt the need to kind of come back and say, okay, like there are these correlative experiences and terms like in the Eastern traditions as there are with the West. But in order to attain individuation or wholeness, one must go through a more Western-oriented path. I think for how it wasn't the case. Um, I think he's equally comfortable in the meditative traditions of the East as he would be with the contemplative traditions of the West. Um, and if anything, he tries to strip, and whether he was successful or not, but the spiritual experience, the meditative experience from the trappings of dogma. And so like when he even writes about meditation, and so I include in my book on how his meditation instructions, right? His meditation technique, like, you know, that's very much stripped bare of like any kind of dogmatic nomenclature. So I think what he did, whether it was, Eastern or so-called Western approaches to contemplative practices, he tried to remove the nomenclature and the dogma and the system's way of approaching it and get to try to get to the essence of what was really there, whether it was East or West. And um, in a way that was kind of, you know, like I think of Husserl and Husserlian phenomenology, you know, going back, you know, to the essences, the things mm -hmm. themselves, let's bracket all of our preconceptions about a phenomenon and let's see what the phenomenon looks like, how we experience it once it's stripped bare, or, or at least we are made aware of what our presuppositions are about. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that getting to the essence, getting to the, the quality of being, I think it was important for him on both sides of the therapeutic relationship that um, finding that in oneself, the disidentification with the the ego, the small c consciousness, the little me. I think he uses that term at some point, the the little man or something. Yeah, there, there's there's the the inner I, the outer me, the little me. Yeah, and like I think I compared it a little bit to. Um, Wilhelm Reich, you know, the idea of the little man in some way. Right. 
So, yeah, but the essence of it being to disidentify with that and um, more and more, uh, I guess, identify with the larger consciousness, um, that's important in for both the, the patient looking for relief from suffering and also in the therapist who's uh, trying to create a space in which uh, the healing principle, Awen, um, can kind of do its thing yes. and uh, to allow for that. And so one of the qualities you said is essential to the therapist is uh, uh, patience, like allowing for time, but also wow. finding a balance of like when it's time to interject, um, maybe to push a little bit. Uh, so really uh, having a, a deep intuitive sense of right timing. Yes. And I think that's, so when I think about that whole idea of, right timing combining that with patience you know because even when you train psychotherapists you know especially those that are you know moving more towards um completing all of their educational requirements you know you get to this place where you start talking about intuition a little bit more you know relying on intuition what does that look like how do i become more spontaneous in some ways in a session well, right. to trust trust the impulse, right? That's it. Like trust where is this coming impulse. from? Is it coming from me trying to of, you know get rid of my own discomfort in a situation? Uh or yes. yeah. That's a tough one. It is a very tough one. And even kind of like so there's a I think one I think how would say that we would have to be careful even in the process where one ident disidentifies with the ego in favor of the so-called higher self or consciousness capital C, right? Because one would have to be mindful of any tendency towards spiritual bypassing, where the move to do that is a way of avoiding in some way psychological pain, psychological um, anguish, you know, a feeling or an emotion or an experience that one must go through. And so for how like that was a huge part of his form of healing, which would be not avoidance, not distancing oneself from the experience, but moving through it in some way. And as we know from being both patients and therapists, that's one of the hardest things to do, you know, to be able to sit with an experience and to feel your way through it. And I think what he would say to strip away, so when we talk about the, the egoic influence on that, it's like, okay, what are the stories that I've told myself about the experience? Or what are the stories that have been told to me about the experience? And what happens if I separate the stories and narratives from the experience itself? And then in some way, you have kind of bracketing the ego and then moving through the experience, which is transformative. I think that's where the alchemy happens. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the, his attitude um, of like allowing time, having patience, mm -hmm. but also at being really um, intelligent about when to interject, to add something. Uh, it feels very much like Wu Wei, mm -hmm. you know, same kind of attitude, like doing, not doing that yes. kind of paradoxical attitude um that you just have to get a feel for and i That's think it's great. all about like wu wei is about like right timing right effort yeah well and if you think too like 
in some way, like how, if one could explain how like Wu Wei or Wei Wu Wei actually works, right? And I think you're spot on. And I think I referenced this in the book that there's a way in which it is what this is about, like this spontaneous way of being, when to retreat, when, when to move forward, when to speak, when to be silent. And I think there's a way in which like if we believe in some way that there's a world soul or there's a logos or there's an ordering to the cosmos, I think in some way if one connects with that in the consulting room and that's the field in which one is immersing oneself with the soup as Jung had described it, there's a way in which the words will come to you. The words will come to the patient. And as you nicely said, you have to trust in those impulses, you know, and sometimes maybe those impulses are coming from a counter-transference kind of place too. And so that's why good supervision and good consultation can be helpful with all of that because we just wouldn't want to romanticize every impulse that comes to one because we would have to explore that. That's what, again, good supervision and consultations for. Right. Or or if you make a a misstep to, to just write that out or to like justify that as well, I'm sorry, but that's psyche speaking through me. You know? <laughs> right, right, right. It's not me, it's psyche. <laughs> yeah, it's like kind of another way of uh bypassing responsibility right. for one's own actions. Um hmm. so uh he I guess had some kind of relationship with Jay Krishnamurti. Now, Krishnamurti set up a school, uh, I think, in London or outside of London. I can't remember all the details. There's a point where I did know this, but uh, he set up like an alternative school of his own, um, kind of like Krishnamurti's version of Waldorf school. Right, right. I was just thinking <laughs> of that, Steiner. Yeah. And so how did uh, Graham Howe and Krishnamurti meet? You know, I think, you know, based on my own research of that like so these open way groups you know that how had kind of started and um you know krishnamurti was someone that how would invite to these to give talks and to give presentations and i think their connection was formed through that you know how had established this very eclectic open-minded group of aspirants that were just curious about the spiritual life and obviously at that time uh krishnamurti you know having you know formally rejected his role as the world teacher and kind of going off on his own um separating himself from the theosophical society you know that was very appealing to how as you can imagine <laughs> yeah right? another outsider okay <laughs> think about it like yeah. think about like the ultimate outsider you yeah. know here's this young man that was touted to be the messiah the world teacher and bred and raised to be such and he goes and on this day where he's supposed to ultimately accept this honor he rejects it and he disbands the order. Like someone like this would very much appeal to E. Graham Howe, you know, who truth yeah. is a pathless land. Like that's how, right? And so spiritually, philosophically, psychologically, like how and Krishnamurti, for me, like were very, very much connected. And 
one could only imagine the kind of dialogues that they would have, like through this open way sort of discussion group, right? Um, I wish there was more to be known about those interchanges, mm -hmm. you know, because we don't have a lot in terms of, you know, what was the impact of Krishnamurti on how? But like when you read how and then you listen to or read Krishnamurti, you're like, these are like-minded individuals. That's why throughout the um throughout the book on how I quote Krishnamurti a lot because there's so much of an influence. And even the original title, Truth as Relationship, that's right out of Krishnamurti. Hmm. Right. And so for me, that was a an ode to Krishnamurti that I was able to name the original title of the dissertation, um, Truth as Relationship, because in many ways, that is one of the threads that moves throughout Hal's writings um, and Krishnamurti's teachings. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I wasn't sure if you were including that stuff because you saw the uh, the correlations between their their thinking uh, and not knowing how much he actually wrote about Krishnamurti because I can't get I can't find his books anywhere. All I have is a, a compilation of some excerpts. Uh, so it's really hard to figure out um, some of these things like what was his actual relationship with Krishnamurti, but also Alan Watts and yeah. Watts. Yeah, Alan Watts in his autobiography in my own way makes mention of how. Mm. Right. And that's where he talks about like, you know, meeting how basically over a meal and kind of picking his brain, you know, like how was someone who would not teach explicitly, but he was someone who obviously wasn't shy in terms of sharing his thoughts. And so, like you can certainly see, like when you read how and you read Alan Watts, the influence of how on Watts. But here's the thing, like how really didn't want that kind of credit. Like he really wanted to in some way be obscure to a certain extent. Um, and I even made the claim in the book that he honored his influences by not writing about them in some way. So because he didn't want to be affiliated with any kind of school or any kind of system or any kind of dogma. And it's this very anti-systematic kind of approach. And so you can only make inferences in some way because his writing is just, he strips it of all of this dogma and nomenclature. But there's a spirit there that really connects his work with all of these other traditions, you know. And so his druidry for me is very much like Sufism in some way. I think it's a very close comparison to a certain extent. And so the way in which the Sufis were people of the world in many respects, and there was the spirituality of everyday life, I think Howe's druidry was very much the same way. It wasn't something he had to explicitly talk about. But as we said, it was more of the mind of the druid, the spirit of the druid, the soul of the druid that he was interested in.